and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. Bad is not going to leave you alone just because you are a good person. Bad makes its living trying to make you forget about what is good. Bad doesn't care that you go to work on time, give to charitable organizations, and help old ladies across the street. Oh, no. What you call bad times, bad experiences, and sometimes bad people are going to find their way into your life. Working its way into the lives of good people is what makes bad so bad. Bad is not going to pass you by because you have an I Love You bumper sticker on your car, own a string of rosary beads, or know how to meditate. Come on, get real. Bad is going to show up in any disguise available in an attempt to beat you up, knock you down, run you over, and tear you apart. Good. Show bad that you are made of good. You are made of divine power, infinite wisdom, pure love, and powerfully piercing insight. Show bad that you have unshakable faith and staying power. Demonstrate to bad that you are put together with the unfathomable intelligence of the chief architect of the universe who issued a lifetime warranty on the durability of your goodness. Put on your faith. Until today, you may have forgotten that you are good enough to withstand anything that you may call bad. Just for today, flex your faith muscles and shake your good fist in bad's face. It's here, in the Archbishop's Corner, where Archbishop Leonard Blair reminds us to put on faith to face the bad. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for sharing your time and welcoming us into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you today? Very well. Well, today, believe it or not, is what's called Dear Diary Day. And studies have shown that expressing our thoughts in a written form on a daily basis reduces anxiety and stress. By writing our stressors out on paper or tapping them out on a computer, we organize our thoughts and develop tools for dealing with our everyday struggles, they tell us. Do you keep a diary or a journal, Archbishop? No, I, I don't. I know that that's been part of, uh, for some people, uh, their spiritual exercises to do so. Mm. But I find, as I get older particularly, that you know I'm always swamped by paper and writing of various kinds and such, and I, I just don't have uh, much desire to do uh, anything more personal like that. I'm with you. I, it takes enough time to do the writing that I have to do than taking time to write down my, my thoughts or what I did this day, you know? Yeah, I mean, I do it, but I do it in an official capacity, a ministerial way, with homilies and with talks and letters and things that I have to do. True. Tomorrow is the start of International Day of Sign Language a day that was proclaimed in order to raise awareness of the importance of sign language and realization of human rights of people who are deaf. Now, it, it, it falls during International Week of the Deaf. Does the Archdiocese have an active deaf apostolate, Archbishop? Well, you're asking a very timely but very delicate uh, question because um, we did have uh, a religious community here uh, in last, uh, well, in recent years who were devoted to that, and of course, we have the School of the Deaf here in, in Hartford, it, it, right. historically, traditionally, and uh, we wanted to serve the deaf community as best we could. You know, people can sign uh, the liturgy and homilies and such, but particularly, for, for example, for deaf people to go to confession, they need a priest who can do this. 
And I say it's a delicate question because this order uh, was not based here in Connecticut, but elsewhere. And it was kind of a fledgling group uh, that hadn't been fully uh, confirmed and established. And uh, a decision was made, not here in Hartford, but elsewhere, that the community would come to an end. And uh, I, I know that our uh, deaf community here in, in Hartford Catholic uh, was uh, upset by that because uh, we were not able, although we tried to at least have one member from that community continue here uh, on his own, he would have been very welcome, but for reasons of his own, he decided that he, he was going to leave. So we are, even as we speak, we are trying to, again, uh, do what we can uh, to uh, provide this uh, ministry and help. And also, we're making it part of our conscious effort with our seminarians that as they prepare for the priesthood, we're encouraging them to take an interest in sign language, uh, signage, and uh, would gladly encourage and help any one of them who wanted to learn this so that in the future we can have a better uh, outreach to our, our deaf Catholic population. Wonderful idea. Tuesday is, believe it or not, the official end of summer and the start of autumn in the Northern Hemisphere. Another summer will soon be gone, seemingly before it even got started. Archbishop, was it a good summer for you? Did you do anything special? Yes, it was a good summer, actually. Um, I, as I mentioned before, I think on this program, my calendar year and the calendar year of the Archdiocese really follows very closely the school calendar. That is to say that things now in September really go into high gear, and they continue that way until next uh at the end of next June. And July and August are really something of a break. Yes, there are things going on, but it's not as intense. And uh, I know that a lot of people like to take vacations in the spring or fall when the weather's nice and such. But certainly for me, the prime time of, to take any vacation time is July and August. And so I was able to, to do that. I went back to my home state of Michigan to visit uh, some old friends. And uh, uh, I, I had actually a a, a little liturgical event, a burial at my old parish where I used to be pastor mm. uh, when I was still in Detroit. I went to uh, an hour away from there to Toledo, the diocese where I've been bishop for 10 years, visited some people, uh, visited our shrine of our, the National Shrine of Our Lady of Consolation in Cary, Ohio, took a drive down there uh, to uh, say a prayer. And then I also um, uh, took a uh, uh, had a vacation uh, time to see a little bit of more of New England uh, for a few days. But the most one of the most interesting things is I, I went to New York City. You know, being now on the East Coast here in Hartford in Connecticut uh, makes it easier to go to a place like Boston or New York for mm. s for some something. So in New York, I did two things in particular. I saw that new play uh, to Kill a Mockingbird mm. uh, with Jeff Daniels that's gotten a lot of acclaim. And I have to say, it was a very powerful and moving uh, play. I mean, I don't know what the critics or others uh, agree or disagree with that, but personally, I was happy that I saw that. And I think it's very timely. And you'd recommend especially, it? Yes, especially all the um, tension that our society is experiencing again about uh, race and ethnicity and all of those things. I just thought it was uh, a very moving uh, thing. And then I also did something I'd never done before, uh, it was a beautiful day when I did it. I went to the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island. Mm -hmm. And there, too, I suppose that's timely. You know, all of our great uh, uh, the, the controversies today and tension about immigration. But what really floored me was that on Ellis Island, there is a 
very long, uh, like a fence out of, out of metal in the, in the yard, in the garden, with the names uh, of immigrants from Ellis Island on there. Now imagine, we're talking about millions of people. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I went to my mother's maiden name, Majewski, and lo and behold, there without any doubt was the name of my grandmother, my aunt and uh, uncle, because uh, I knew their names and, and I, the circumstance that, that, that has to be them, they were all together. Uh, this was really quite uh, astounding to me. Yes. Yeah. And also my grandfather, who died in 1926, but so I didn't know him, but his name was on there as well. Uh, the Blairs are a different story. My mother always laughed, you know, about the Blairs, that they're somewhat mysterious. And uh, <laughs> we don't have time to go into that, how it, you know, Polish background mainly, but yet what appears to be a very Scottish name. And I hope sometime that I would have a, a chance to do more research into that. But apparently there are people who enter the United States who didn't come through uh, New York. And Ellis Island, of course, only dates from a certain time. Before that, uh, they didn't necessarily have the same records. But anyway, uh, I just found it a very uh, interesting thing, the magnificent Statue of Liberty there. And, and it occurred to me, you know, today we live in an age of T-shirts and blue jeans, and everybody's real casual, yeah. and nobody wants to... We Our kind of art is very... Um, I don't know what you'd call it, minimalist. I thought to myself, are we capable today of ever building a Statue of Liberty? I really have to say, maybe others would disagree with me, but I'm not sure that we are. You know, to build, to, to, devo to devote something monumental that a lot of people had to contribute to. You know, the French people, uh, ordinary people contributed. I'm sure there were wealthy people too, but contributed to building it as a gift to America. And the American people, we had to uh, collect the money to build the base, uh, which at that time was a pretty good amount of money. And I just wonder, do we live in a world anymore where people would do something like that? And if we won't or we can't, I think that's a terrible loss to us. And it says something uh, about us that uh, we ought to reflect on. But anyway, those are just some thoughts about some of the things I was able to do this summer. Let me quickly ask you a question about Ellis Island. Uh, did, you, did you find that the names, especially of your, your mother's maiden name, that that had been changed or altered when, uh, when your grandparents came over to, uh, no, to Ellis it, Island? It, no, it had not. Because, uh, and that's interesting because you know, they have rooms there in which you go to each room and it tells you the process the immigrants had to go through. And one of them was about the registry. And they have a, a description there that says that... Uh, a lot of people say that because people uh, had such unusual names for an English-speaking registrar, mm -hmm. that he changed names or just you know wrote it in a different way. They said that could be true, but the evidence really doesn't suggest that that was a common occurrence. And I found my grandmother's name was Mariana Majewska, you know Majewski, but with an A on the end for woman, because my grandfather had come earlier, so she was by herself with her kids. And they had it written just that way, Mariana Majewska, not Marian Majewski or anything like that. See, I, my family has had the opposite experience. The name was changed and, and shortened or spelled differently than Well, the I'm original. sure that some of the names really, inevitably, in handwritten transcriptions yeah. with uh, all that uh, people coming in different languages, I'm sure that things were changed. But I guess the point of what they were saying there was there, they were not, they did not deliberately try to be sloppy about it or you know I was impressed too that what they described there people really now it was a harsher time when certain things that demands were greater but they said 98 percent of the people who came were received into the United States 
And you can see there, there were a lot of people who were very helpful to the immigrants. They, there were exceptions, of course, but uh, they, they were, you know, treated, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, I can't say if you had to stand in these huge lines of 5,000 people, today people would say that they're being treated like cattle. But by the standards of those times, they were not necessarily treated harshly. They were given their due, you know, yeah. to get into the country. They provided meals for them. They provided care for people who were sick, all of that kind of thing. Uh, I'm glad you had such a, an exciting and productive summer. The official end of summer, this Tuesday, September 24th. Archbishop, let's now take a look at the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis, drawn from some of the Pope's writings. I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and then we'll ask you to comment with your own thoughts. This is taken from Pope Francis's homily, delivered on December 14th of 2014, and it's called, Bring Peace, Bring the Balm of Jesus. Pope Francis says, We are anointed. The word Christian means the anointed ones. And why are we anointed? To do what? He sent me to bring the good news. To whom? To the afflicted. To bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. To announce a year of favor from the Lord. This is the vocation of Christ and the vocation of all Christians to help others in need, whether their needs be material or spiritual. Many people suffer anxiety because of family problems. Bring them peace, too. Bring the balm of Jesus, the oil of Jesus, which does so much good and soothes the soul. Archbishop, your thoughts. Well, yes, once again, you know, it's a matter of, uh, of uh, the love of God, of uh, charity, to, to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love God above all things. So the, the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, and uh, as the Pope, of course, has said on other occasions, and as I would, and I often say, that the greatest uh, gift we bring to others uh, is the gift of faith. Um, it, it, it's not just about philanthropy, it's not just about material care, even though that's essential, but we do it motivated by a spiritual faith that also speaks to the people who receive it, and uh, that witness uh, is meant to bring them closer to God in Christ. And uh, so that's what we need to do. Isn't it interesting that the, the Pope says that this is the vocation of all Christians to help others in need, whether their needs be material or spiritual? Yes, well, I, again, I, I often uh, can be accused of repeating myself, but the first Lenten message that I uh, read from the Pope uh, some years ago was that we need to address the spiritual, moral, and material destitution of so many people in our society and our world today. And I think those three, I think of that with the mission of our archdiocese, you know, uh, the moral, the spiritual, moral, and material destitution, that uh, so many people are empty and in need, and, and we need to address that, and I think that's what he's saying here as well. Well, let's take a look now at our gospel reading on this 25th Sunday in Ordinary Time, the 22nd day of, of September. Today's reading is from Luke's Gospel, once again, the 16th chapter. And after the Gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, and for your thoughts on what this Gospel means to you. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a steward, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, 
so that people may receive me into their houses when I am put out of the stewardship. So, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, and sit down quickly and write fifty. And then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest steward for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal habitations. He who is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and he who is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Archbishop, what is Jesus trying to teach his disciples through this parable? Well, you know, this is an interesting uh, gospel about stewardship, uh, because in a certain sense, our Lord is, um, is commending uh, somebody for uh, feathering their own nest, for, for being very clever about how to ease their future uh, and, and, and provide for it. Uh, but Jesus does say, uh, I tell you, make friends for yourselves with dishonest wealth uh, so that you'll be uh, welcomed into eternal dwellings. That even uh, this material craftiness of the steward in the parable can be a model for us that, yes, we have the things we do, and uh, whether, uh, for however we got them, is another matter. You know, uh, I don't mean that we should steal or anything like that, but I mean, you could argue that if, if there are social injustices in society and we have a lot and other people have a little, some people would argue that what we have is tainted by kind of unjust system or something like that. But whatever you may think about these matters, uh, the important thing Jesus is saying is use what you have to make friends for yourself for eternity. And that is to say uh, that you have to use whatever material things come your way, the goods that you receive, use it for the good of other people. Uh, and and that way you'll make friends with God and you'll be rich in the sight of heaven, which is the only kind of wealth that lasts or that matters. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters, you cannot serve God and mammon. What does he mean? A, a true Christian cannot be a wealthy Christian? No, it means that a wealthy Christian cannot serve mammon. You cannot serve money. You have to serve God and you have to use your money and material wealth to serve God. And I think we all know how... Uh, money can corrupt people and the lust for money and the, almost the worship of money. And so uh, that's why we have to use whatever God gives us materially to serve God and not material things. Well, we've got several questions that have been submitted by our listeners, Archbishop, so let's take a look at some of those questions. This question comes from Vincent from Waterbury, and Vincent says, the Catechism notes that stewardship of the natural resources of the earth doesn't just entail responsible use of those resources for ourselves, but also means preserving them for the use and enjoyment of future generations. 
What is the Catholic perspective on man's role in maintaining the environment, given that we are facing a serious issue in global warming? Well, Vincent, you're, as you note, the Catechism does talk about the stewardship, and uh, Pope Francis has been very uh, notable uh, with his uh, letter, uh, Laudato Si, about the importance of uh, ecology. Well, and I might add that contrary to what some people uh, portray, Pope Francis talks above all about the ecology of the human person, about respect for human life, first of all, mm -hmm. but then at great length as well about the ecology of uh, our planet. And in, in that, he has been preceded by all of the uh, recent popes who've all taken up this issue in some fashion. And, uh, you know, it's true that the earth is entrusted to human beings uh, to, to cultivate and to till. But at the same time, we realize we are fallen creatures uh, who are sinful. And therefore, just as we can misuse our bodies or misuse other people, uh, or we can also misuse uh, material things, even the earth itself, to exploit or to harm and all God's uh, wonderful living creatures. So what we need to do is uh, uh, we have to act responsibly. And the church doesn't have uh, a scientific answer to give to this. That is for human uh, intelligence and ingenuity and planning to figure out. But we do have a moral obligation to try to do so and uh, to uh, to pr preserve the environment, God's world entrusted to us, to be good stewards of it, not exploiters that destroy it. And it's as simple as that, but also as challenging. So the moral imperative is that we take care of what God has given us, not only for our own benefit, but so that we can preserve it for future generations to come. Yes, who looking at a beautiful forest or lake, uh, crystal clear and beautiful, would want to use it in such a way that it is destroyed or right. made un unusable for others? What, what is the point of that? I mean, even from the point of view of human reason, uh, it, it just, it, the only explanation for such a thing can be that we don't care and we're just trying to make money or we're trying to survive uh, in a way that, uh, that, that, that pays no mind to the value of these things in themselves for the, for the future and for other people. Diane from Winchester says, The Archdiocesan Synod is being convened in 2020. Where are we with planning for the 2020 Archdiocesan Synod? Can I participate? If so, how? Well, Diana, the Synod preparation is going very well. Actually, the Synod representatives are being, uh, delegates are being convened um, uh, at the end of October. And uh, so the actual celebration of the final uh, Synod uh, conclusion will be in 2020, I believe, as I recall, on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, but how you can participate? Well, we had listening sessions to which anyone could come in the Archdiocese and every deanery. And then we had in each parish the, the uh, name, uh, proposal of delegates that I appointed. And so we have like 300 delegates representing all of the parishes, various constituencies, uh, the clergy, the religious, uh, although most, of course, are laity. And they are the Synod delegates who, are, who have already met twice. And uh, so how you can participate if you're not a Synod delegate, and I take it you're not, is that uh, by uh, praying, uh, if you look at our Diocesan website on the Synod, you'll find all kinds of things there. Uh, there's a Synod prayer uh, that, that I say every day uh, for, for the Synod. And we also have also said, you know, Jesus is fast and pray. So we have a very nice... A program that's going on right now these Fridays um, 
of, uh, well, it might be coming to a conclusion now, but every Friday, inviting the Synod delegates in particular, but also open to the public, to do something uh, somewhat penitential, somewhat of self-discipline, to offer that up for the, the God's blessing on the Synod. So if you look at our website, you can find all kinds of things, Diane, that I think you'll find very interesting and helpful. Archbishop, we have a question from Ethan from Hamden. Ethan says, with news about mass shootings taking place in public places across the U.S., what can be done to make certain our parishes and churches in Connecticut are violence-free zones? Well, yes, Ethan, and not just uh, churches and parishes, but our schools, too. I think I've commented on this before. This question's been asked before, but I'm happy to repeat it. Uh, Our insurance uh, carrier for the Archdiocese uh, has uh, published some information that we've shared with all of our pastors. I've encouraged our parishes to contact their local police departments uh, for the police to come and do an evaluation and to uh, offer uh, their insights and help on this. Uh, Spiritually, I've asked churches to consider putting an icon of St. Michael the Archangel in our church vestibules as a a, a heavenly protector uh, and asked all of our pastors and parish staffs to be attentive uh, to these kinds of things and to have uh, some th- some planning, particularly with the help of the police, uh, about these kinds of matters. Because it is a very tragic and horrible thing that's happening with all of this violence, and we have to do everything we can to prevent it. I think we have time for one last question. Archbishop Valerie from Newington says, what are the rules for selling a church building that can no longer be used for religious purpose? Well, sadly, and it's very sad to me as a bishop, when we do have a church that we really can no longer use. It's just not uh, viable anymore uh, to, to, to continue to use it for lack of uh, attendance, uh, for lack of principally that, and often in conjunction with that, the lack of resources to keep it up. Um, there are rules about this uh, in church law uh, that, first of all, the church building has to be what we call relegated. And I have to go to the Presbyteral Council uh, of the Archdiocese uh, to have their uh, uh, consent that we relegate it. To, now I'm going to use a funny phrase from canon law uh, for profane but not sordid use, and that means it won't be used as a church, but also it has to be something that's not that's not undignified. When we sell these buildings, it's part of the contract. Certain conditions about their use. Now, unfortunately, though, down the road, if that church were then sold to somebody else in the future, those restrictions might not necessarily continue to apply but we try to be as careful as we can. And I would emphasize to you, when we sell these properties, the money does not go to the archdiocese. It goes to the parish in which these churches are now what parish they belong to, uh, if it's a newly created parish or whatever. And then uh, the we also try to remove, in fact, not try, we do remove all the things of sacred uh, and, and artistic value uh, in many, it can't always, it's not always possible, but wherever possible, we have the stained glass removed and that can be then put up for sale for another church to use someplace. Again, the proceeds go to the parish, uh, or even removing consecrated altars, things like that. So, you know, it's a very difficult uh, thing, and uh, it really breaks my heart to see a, a Catholic church uh, that has to be, especially those that have artistic or historic value, uh, to be lost to us, and particularly if it's used in some way that's really not appropriate. Is it preferred, Archbishop, that if a church is going to be sold, that it be sold to another church group for religious purposes? 
yes, if, if, if that's possible, and that has happened in some cases, and if that's possible, certainly that's what we would, would uh, like to see it still used for. We've come to the end of our program, uh, Archbishop. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing? Lord, we thank you at this time of year and ask you that as school has begun and so many other activities have resumed in people's lives and in our social and cultural life, that we will always seek your glory above all else and our neighbor's good. Help us to be more just and loving, more peaceful and more caring about this beautiful world which you have created and help us to always uh, walk with your blessing. And may Almighty God bless all of you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to being with you again next week at 7 o'clock on Sunday with a repeat at 11.30 in the morning. Until then, enjoy this and the remaining days of summer. Thank you.